Hello and welcome back to the IPA's Looking Forward, a weekly podcast of debate and discussion about politics and ideas. This day, July 15th, our panellists will cut through the noise around a voice to Parliament, unpack a radical idea from Queensland for some real review of government-funded science, and look in on a massive conference in the USA which is seeking to reshape conservatism for the 21st century. As always, we close with our books and culture segment. Today, we're covering works on the early days of the exploration of Australia, a book smuggled out of North Korea at great risk to life and limb, David Epstein's book on why generalists beat specialists, and perhaps inevitably, Stranger Things on Netflix. I'm Scott Hargraves, editor of the IPA Review, joined as always by my co-host from RMIT University, Dr Chris Berg. Thank you, Scott. Also with us in the IPA studio, our Director of Research, Daniel Wilde. Thanks, Scott. And last but not least, writer and commentator, Christian Kerr. G'day. Welcome to the podcast, Christian. Great to have you. You'll be familiar to many of our listeners and uh, and uh, those who aren't. Well, they now know who you are. <laughs> we, we, we can make what an repu- honour. We can make reputations <laughs> we right here on Looking Forward. <laughs> now, uh, first up, recognition. That's right. So, Scott, um, last week, the Indigenous Australians Minister, Ken Wyatt, committed the government to pursuing um, what is now being described as constitutional recognition in his first speech to the National Press Club. He said, and I quote, I will develop and bring forward a consensus option for constitutional recognition to be put to a referendum during the current parliamentary term. Um, This has, of course, re-raised the very thorny and hard to get out of constitutional recognition debate. Dan, what on earth does he mean by a consensus option? It's a very good question, Chris, no, and I hope, I, hope I, to uh, I've set it up for you. Shed so. some light. There's a few <laughs> different proposals in this area, but the point is, it's not exactly clear what that means, and that is actually part of the problem. So, in a general sense, uh, the idea of constitutional recognition could be something from a preamble uh, in the constitution, whereby um, you have in the constitution uh, something to the effect of a recognition that Indigenous Australians were here prior to settlement. They have a forty, fifty thousand year old culture. And the idea is to recognise that as being a fact um, through to uh, what has been promoted more recently, which is having a body inserted into the constitution, so-called a voice, a voice to parliament on behalf of Indigenous Australians. That would be comprised solely of Indigenous Australians and is there to promote policy uh, or to provide advice uh, on behalf of Indigenous Australians. So um, that is the, the basic general idea or approach. Uh, it could be done uh, via a constitutional amendment or it could be done um, through legislation. But that's the basic overview of uh, where the uh, debate is in terms of what such a body might look like. Christian, it sort of looks like the government is flailing about here. Um, one of the big things that Ken Wyatt made clear that he wasn't going to go to a referendum unless there was a, quote, national consensus is there any chance of a national consensus is there any chance of a consensus within the government about what this would look like well i think the first question is where on earth do you put it (laughs) i mean we've got a really utilitarian constitution you have a look at our opening of our constitution and it is effectively okay you know we've got six colonies um you know, we're a bunch of bonds of blokes and sheilas, and um, <laughs> hey, let's have a fair deconfederation, Your Majesty. And that's effectively it. It is the shortest introduction. You know, nothing about life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, footy on a Saturday afternoon. It is an incredibly brief introduction into then what is an incredibly 
dry document. So we're immediately spinning into different debates. We've immediately got the question of a preamble. I think that's one which possibly, possibly could consider, but it went down in such a heap in 1999. So even before you start going into the really contentious things of um, the third chamber, specific bodies to represent Indigenous people, specific bodies sitting on the wreck of ATSIC, I think we've just got to sort of say, where do we go? And if we've got a preamble, then surely it's going to end up being loaded up by other things. So consensus in the government, I think difficult. Consensus in the parliament, even more difficult. The idea, yes, why not? But, I mean, the implementation, I think, is so thorny, and I don't think these ideas should actually be floated without a little more detail and without a little more consideration. Well, I, I will just uh, take this opportunity, though, Christian, to, do, to, give, um, to give the devil its due. The, the argument that's been put forward, so as you say, our existing constitution is, is what you might call a conservatively drafted one. It's, the, it's not about... Uh, flowery language or or teleology, you know, objectives about where we should finish up. It's just how you know, mainly to run a federation, and this is what uh, Julian Lisa um, uh, within the Liberal Party, the um, federal MP from Sydney, has argued that um, there being a, a constitutional conservatives by arguing for a very minimal change and the, about the only concrete proposal I've seen for a voice. Um, which was put forward in a, in a letter from Noel Pearson and others, is simply three lines, which simply says, there shall be a thing called a voice, uh, and the parliament shall make laws for how it should operate. And, and that, is, that is the essence of their argument, that this is somehow a, a conservative, constitutional conservative solution to the problem. A better conservative solution to the problem. So let's say let's say that we supported the voice, which I, I I don't personally support the voice. But let's say you did support a voice and you wanted to implement it. The last thing that you would do is such a open faced um, uh, couple of sentences in the constitution that both the parliament and the high court then had to interpret based on the debate that was going around at the time. If you were a, cons a constitutional conservatives who wanted to introduce a voice, surely you would tightly prescribe it. Surely you would give it really clear domain. And this sort of drops us into this big question. So right now we've been um, uh, in the voice argument that we've been having, and the voice came out of the... Um, the Uluru Statement from the Heart, which um, argued for the establishment of a First Nations voice enshrined in the Constitution. So many of us, many conservatives, many liberals, many libertarians have said, okay, well, that looks a lot like a third chamber of parliament. And that is an argument that has been quite widely rejected. In fact, I was looking at a guidance from The Guardian. Is the Indigenous voice a third chamber <laughs> of parliament? No. Isn't that debatable? No. Oh, there you go. Politicians. Oh, well, that's well, so if, the Guardian, if the Guardian is ruled, and, and their argument is that, well, a chamber of parliament, the definition of a chamber of parliament, is something that produces bills, and, and this would not produce bills, this would produce advice. But on the other hand, this voice, as it's been proposed by most people in the debate, is actually a representative body. It's Yes, it doesn't produce bills, but it's a representative body with political authority, if not political power. It is meant to empower 
people. Um, it's meant to be significant. In fact, the Melbourne Law School professor Jeremy Gans has made some really interesting observations about the purpose of this is to be a quasi third chamber. And if you just throw it to some generic language in the Constitution, I cannot see how it wouldn't be empowered over time. And I think that's where it's really contentious because the experience of ATSIC is still so fresh. There is literally litigation this still was the drifting Aborig around. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Island, Island Commission, Commission yeah. which was an elected representative body. There is still litigation flying around as a result from that. There is still criminal proceedings being considered <laughs> as a result of ATSIC. It was not a happy experience. I know of one individual when part of the Indigenous Affairs portfolio went into Prime Minister and Cabinet. It was thought that the portfolio needed to be audited. This person went off to see how grants were being spent in the arts sector. They were in Tasmania, which is already a pretty red-hot area for Indigenous affairs, and they discovered that under the umbrella of this organisation, there was literally money being spent on the traditional or Aboriginal craft of scrapbooking. I mean, this is the sort of excess that we associate with ATSIC, and I think the whole ATSIC experience should make us incredibly concerned about any suggestion of any representative body whatsoever. So is that is that... Then to follow that up, is that a reject? Uh, is that an argument against any statutory voice body? So I think I, I I think it's clear that there are serious concerns with the constitutional voice. Can we just like is are, are we concerned about setting up a statutory voice body, a regulator, a, a an advisory productivity commission for Indigenous people? I think there are these sort of definitions which go with it on Aboriginality which is an issue that I think is being thrashed out. I think it's fair to say that probably more people are coming forward to identify as Aboriginal because they do feel more confident. Family histories that have been hidden are being told. I think that's a perfectly reasonable line to take. But just think of that sort of dispute when Jackie Lambie claimed her Aboriginality that was rejected in some quarters. I mean, I think there are going to be issues like that dogging it. I really think that that just needs to be shoved aside. I think it is an impossible debate. I think it is a debate that we've effectively seen what can occur, and I think if we are going to talk about this, and I do think it's an important thing, I do think it's sort of how can we have some brief acknowledgement in the Constitution? Well, this seems to be Scott Morrison's position, isn't it, Dan? It is. His position is not entirely clear, so he seems to have rejected the idea of having a constitutional voice and therefore not having a referendum, presumably for the same reasons as the previous Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull outlined, which is that it would fail. I'm not sure if he has a principled position against it or not. Um, it may just be a practical one. Um, on the issue of the third chamber or, or the voice more generally, uh, I think it's a problem for two reasons. One is, even if you could um, put in some la uh, legal safeguards that would say this, you know, it, it, it limits the ability and the power of that uh, chamber or the of that group. The High Court is never allowed to look at it, that sort of stuff. Yeah, you mm. could do a variety of things, but we all know that the moral sway of it would, uh, in effect, make it a third chamber. It's inconceivable that if um, there was a bill going through Parliament 
and uh, this particular body was to say that um, this bill or the, the consequences of this bill, if enacted, would not be in the interest of Indigenous Australians, um, it's inconceivable that that would then proceed. I but what's, what's wrong with that? I mean, I think that in, in that sense, I wish there were more groups, bodies that had moral sway over legislation that the parliament passes? Uh, well, the problem with it is that it's... One of the problems is that it's based on race. So I reject it in, in the sense that uh, we shouldn't have a body in our any in, in any part of our policy process, whether it's constitutional or otherwise, that is simply there to say, um, you know, this is good for Indigenous Australians or not. Um, if you know, people are free to do that, if they want to set up a lobby group, if they want to set up an interest group to um, analyse laws and legislations from a particular group's perspective, then that, that's their prerogative and, that, and they're free to do so. But having something that is actually inserted within a policy-making process based on a racial grouping is, in my view, morally wrong. Uh, but the other component is it makes the mistake of assuming that Indigenous Australians are somehow fundamentally different to non-Indigenous Australians. I think, yes, there are important cultural differences in a lot of ways, but we shouldn't start assuming that we're going to have one set of policies for Indigenous Australians and another set for non-Indigenous. The fundamental, I would argue, building blocks of a successful life don't depend on your indigeneity. We, there, there's policies that affect all Australians and that are going to be good for all Australians or bad for all Australians. So there may be some specific differences, but entrenching this idea that we're going to have different policies for different groups of people um, is very divisive. But I think I, I think just we have had Indigenous-only policies and some of those Indigenous-only policies have been really harmful. And so reading through the Uluru Statement from the Heart, which I do recommend people read the drive for a third chamber of parliament or a voice or however you want to describe it is because of a feeling of powerlessness and i get that because particularly in things like the northern territory intervention where they sent the military into the northern territory just because they could in order to you know enforce um uh, to to you know impose moral and social controls and so forth i can understand why the indigenous community feel powerlessness in many senses for certainly over the last hundred years they haven't had um, much power over the policies that shape their lives they haven't had influence over indigenous related relevant specific policy so looking for ways to empower in a liberal framework without abandoning um, racial equality without um, abandoning liberal equality I think that's what we should be doing well that's a general program of localism yeah, uh, no, precisely. That's, yeah. One thing that, yeah. that's one thing that Ken White got right in his speech. So he talked about one of the problems in Indigenous policy is command and control policy from Canberra, and that's exactly right. So um, I agree that the localism angle is correct. There's also an issue here with native title and land rights in that the, the way that the... I mean, I would argue they should have proper private property. So at the moment, that a lot of Indigenous Australians don't actually have control over their property or over the land in the same way as we have control over our house or over a business. And so there are a lot of, you might say, um, policies that are consistent with a broad liberal framework that would be um, good. But this is not... My point here is localism is good for everyone, not just Indigenous <laughs> Australians. Property rights are good for everyone, not just Indigenous Australians. These are, these are good for the country, not just based on people of a certain race. And Daniel said the magic word, and that's localism. I think it's been one of the, so, you know, the great lessons from Noel Pearson's career about the importance of localism and the importance of localism in Indigenous affairs is always so obvious. I mean, when I used to travel around as a ministerial staffer, you would go to communities where much of the money had been spent, the men had been running the show, 
effectively the systems had broken down, the women didn't come in and they were keeping everything going. It's that whole sense that things can come from communities, that it's not just Indigenous communities. It's really, um, it's really damning them to say it's only a problem there. It's a problem with welfare everywhere. I mean, I think nothing ever, ever will beat um, Michael Gove's term of the blob, of <laughs> the bureaucracy, of the bureaucratic apparatchiks that just want to swallow us all. He's probably the least fashionable person to mention nowadays, <laughs> but Steve Hilton, David Cameron's advisor, who wanted to try and chop things down to go local. And I mean, I think this is where it's an important debate with the welfare side of things, with the powerless side of things, because it's not just Aboriginal people, but obviously we're steering into a completely different thing here. But perhaps we can actually just try and take some of these arguments yeah, being well, put, I, I, put by Aboriginal people and steer them into broader things to do with welfare and accountability. If only we had a political system that was specifically designed to give us at least some semblance of localism. But by this stage, given the dire state of our federalism and the takeover of government, of, of, of policy across the board to the Commonwealth level, we're actually unable to do that. And it's particularly obvious in a place like the Northern Territory, where they don't have any state power. Mm. Um, uh, uh, so I, or uh, money. Or, or, no, they don't have any money, and they don't, but they certainly don't have any state power. And certainly it's not the case that all Aboriginal people reside in the Northern Territory, which is definitely not the case. But um, just the idea that the Northern Territory can be Canberra's plaything from a public policy perspective, where you know a state would be able to um, defend itself, give itself some sense of localism, give itself some sense of voice, it strikes me that there are actually fairly straightforward solutions to the sense of powerlessness if we just look at the state of our federation. Well, I don't think I've ever been in an Aboriginal community where there wasn't something impressive happening and genuinely impressive. People working with virtually nothing to do something for the welfare of the members of that community. They mightn't be able to cover everything. They're not covering everything. They found a specific problem that they can tackle and I mean, when you start looking at that sort of thing, it is the absolute tragedy of command and control. Thank you, Christian. That's a, a positive, optimistic note on which to conclude that segment. Uh, meanwhile, there's other ideas coming out of Queensland, which are worth a look at. There are other ideas coming out of Queensland, Scott. Queensland cannot be um, uh, faulted for its ability to come up with ideas. The Queensland Liberal National Party passed a resolution at its conference over the weekend, this weekend, to establish an Office of Science Quality Assurance. Um, and I'll quote from their resolution, to ensure scientific information used by the Queensland government to inform decision-making associated with public policy is rigorous and Reliable. Obviously, this comes in the context of regulatory decision-making around major projects like Adani, um, caring for the reef and so forth, environmental science specifically. Uh, the um, Senator Matt Cavan Canavan, the Resources Minister, said, to me, it just makes sense for there to be contestability in the space. Obviously, he means in the science space. Science only moves forward when we can challenge ideas. Dan, do we think that the problem with government-funded science is that we don't have enough government-funded scientists? 
Good question, Chris. Not, not to set it up. Good question, Chris. <laughs> no, look, I, I'm actually open to this prospect because I'm at a point where I think, well, what else are we going to do? So there's already, I mean, the entire bureaucracy is already stacked out with people that have a certain view, a certain opinion. Um, you know, the fundamental idea that you can set up another institution that could offset that is questionable, I accept, because chances are in 10 years' time it will be stacked out with those very same people that are causing the problems to begin with. Having said that, I would say a body like the Productivity Commission did have a very good run. It was, um, uh, these days, it's not as good as it once was, but if you look at reports that it had written, mostly in a broader economic sense, it was a very good, reliable um, institution full of people that are more of a free market um, disposition, economic rationalists. That's an example of a, of, a, of a body that provided scrutiny to government policy that I think worked well for a while. Um, I think having a similar idea in the science area is worth a go. Uh, as I say, I don't think things can really get any worse. Worst case scenario is you have yet another body taken over by the left. Well, so be it if that <laughs> happens because there's already a thousand of them and what's one more? Yeah, I, th I think this is part of, uh, as you say, whether this is a particular solution or not, and our colleague uh, Jennifer Marahassi has said, you know, this isn't the right model, but th this is part of a backlash. Um, not, not really against, certainly not against science. Like, I really object to that claim that, you know, you're somehow anti-science because you dispute, you know, some bureaucrat, you know, quoting some study to justify why, why you are not allowed to engage in farming upon your property because it might have some impact on the Great Barrier Reef a thousand kilometres away, which is actually the world that many people in Queensland live in. What it's really an objection to is this sort of uh, rule by experts that... Um, uh, politicians have stopped taking accountability for decision making. Uh, they uh, hide behind their bureaucrats, who in turn hide behind scientists. And um, but of course, it's it's science that's reached the political process uh, through a particular way. It's often government funded in the first place. And uh, what recipient of government funds has ever said that government might be the problem uh, rather than the solution? So. The, the, this uh, motion at the LNP conference is really, I think, part of a broader trend that's happening all over the world to say, look, we're sick of just being told to shut up because the experts have made a ruling, because the experts have frequently, very frequently, been proven to be wrong very soon thereafter. This just makes to me of desperation, <laughs> of just utter desperation. I mean, Andrew said, what's it with another body because it's going to be captured by lefties? Well, of course it's going to be captured by the left. I mean, it's asking for it to be captured by the left. And I'm really surprised, actually, that um, someone as practical as Matt Canavan has even endorsed this sort of thing. I mean, we had outrage on the ABC earlier this week where Adani was trying to find out some of the details of, God help us, LinkedIn profiles of scientists involved in decision-making. I mean, we have seen just such terrible politicisation of science and government. Putting up another body does not address that. I, I think you're echoing what I'm saying. It is absolute desperation because that, desperation, that, that, is, that is the past we have come to. No, it's not. It's not. We cannot accept that. There has just got to be transparency. No, look, There's got to be much more transparency in who the government decision makers are. But Matt Canavan's not wrong in 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 his his argument. I don't think I, I, I'm I'm quite aggressively opposed to this body, this proposal. But he's not wrong that we need contestability in this space. But the the failure here is just to look to the state for that contestability. 
Um, and what we need is not to look like the, the, the government is a monopoly um, holder of power. It is not a monopoly holder of ideas. It is not a monopoly holder of truth. What we need is um, greater contestability over scientific research to come from the private sector, come, to come from the non-profit sector, even albeit the universities, although we've obviously got serious problems with that. Um, and that way, will have much more publicly accessible information to either endorse or challenge government decisions. They should not be in a position to be writing their own research. They should be only able to um, uh, rely on the research the wider world provides them, make that judgment their call. But the scientific truths that comes from outside the government. Governments are not in charge of truth. So we've got to think about how would we, how would we do that? And, and that's a serious policy question. It's probably a bigger policy question than the Queensland LNP can deal with. But I think we've shown that the interrelationship between government and science, starting most recently with Peter Ridd, but going all the way back into the 19th century and the 20th century um, has been just a disaster. It's corrupted science and it's corrupted government. Well, I mean, the term big science is scarcely new. The thing that is new, I think, is that we just have these four damning words that can apparently shut down any debate. The science is settled. <laughs> Indeed. And, and and there are models. This, this is what I'm saying. Uh, and we should be open to these models. Peter Ridd's model, uh, or an element of it, he discussed on this podcast when we interviewed him was you know if, if given the vast sums of money flowing into research if you just held one percent of that back and said let's apply that to real quality assurance of the other 99 percent you could do some amazing things and and he but he discovered that is actually against the rules at the moment mm. because the arc will only fund original research and it goes to a broader problem which is how do you achieve that, well, I think it's a great idea, but how do you achieve that when the entire apparatus will oppose it? I mean, you have such a well-funded rent-seeking group uh, funded by taxpayers that will just oppose this lock, stock and barrel. So that's why I've reluctantly reached the view that you have to try and take these things over somehow because you can't, you, you cannot achieve change with well-funded interest groups that will oppose it. And yes, the first best approach is to stop funding these groups. I mean, we've, we've talked about this a lot at the IPA, government funding of interest groups that then lobby back to government for more regulation and taxes. Yes, the swamp. Cut the swamp. Cut mm. that funding. But if you can't cut that funding because the interest group pressure is so immense, what is the second best option? And I think it is something like these groups. It may not be the specific LMP motion. It may or may not be Peter Ridd's idea, but we need... We need another way of thinking about it. But, how to do it. but uh, <laughs> I, I feel like over time this conversation is going to talk about the National uh, Conservative Convention, um, which is going on in the US. Um, uh, but before we get to that, it, doesn't that strategy fall into precisely the same problem? It's like looking at all the things that have failed over time and saying, yes, we need much more of that. You set up a bureaucracy, you, let's call it the Productivity Commission for argument's sake, um, and it's good for a couple of years and then it's terrible. So what do we what do we do? We set up a new one. We set up a new one after that and we set up a new one after that. And that's that's not just that's not just learning from our mistakes. It's actually it, it's doubling down on them and it's creating the problem that we hate in the first place. We want more taxpayer organizations funded fully staffed by left-wing people. That's true, but the alternative hasn't worked either. So <laughs> well, the alternative fun. hasn't worked because there, we have tried the alternative. Well, we we well, have and we we've tried it in yeah. the most pathetic and tokenistic ways. Remember when Brendan Nelson 
God bless him, that great man of principle, put Paddy McGuinness on the Australian Research Council. <laughs> now, I've seen wonderful swarms of correspondence between Paddy and the Council on grant applications. It's very, very entertaining. It's very Paddy. It's absolutely worth noting every point he made. But the poor old bloke was pissing in the wind with all of this. Uh, I, I have an Australian Research Council grant in right now, so we're not going to talk. No, we're not going to talk about the ARC. I mean, one of the one of the, one of the things, of course, is the uh, the states and the and the Commonwealth have been heading down the road of appointing chief scientists. Um, and I think it's illustrative uh, the example of say coal seam gas. So in in Victoria, uh, the chief scientist has been. One of those is fallen in with the idea that oh, there is many, 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 many scientific issues that need to be resolved before scientific, uh, before uh, before scientists could approve coal seam gas. Even though like it's a, a massive industry in Queensland, a massive industry in the US, it's essentially been shut down in Victoria, and now they're even going to start drilling holes again as a way of testing it. Even though the gas industry has been doing that in Australia for about 140 years, we need scientists to do it. But in New South Wales, where the equivalent chief scientist actually said it could proceed it was you know the the risk could be managed uh and that santos should be allowed to bring gas out of the out of the pillager and bring it into sydney where it is desperately needed that decision or that recommendation has languished for want of the political will to do anything about it so this this is the problem, it's not uh, even with the science, it's the way science is, is being used and that politicians are just not being accountable for the advice that they are getting. But it's a specific thing of a more general problem, right? So we've set up over the last couple of decades and the Conservatives or the, the writer centre of politics is just as much to blame for this as well. Set up all these independent regulatory authorities, independent advisory authorities. We've actually created the technocratic system, the quote, elites that make decisions about the truth of certain economics, certain science, certain public policy matters. We've actually set that up because we thought that we can separate the decision-making from the politics. It's a political system. We have to understand that um, there's a truth out there in the world and then there are ideas and it's the ideas that drive politics, not that sort of hypothesized elite truth. But it's become deranged. It's really taken on this bizarre life of its own, uh, the whole level of science and science versus the environment in particular. Now, as a professional economic refugee from South Australia, <laughs> I spent so much of my time and it's just not reading the Adelaide <laughs> Advertiser and just ripping my hair out because of, say, issues like drilling in the Gulf. Now, here is a busted-ass Rust Belt state, full stop, that is still saying, oh, no, 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 we can't risk our beloved golf. I go down to Lord and I see in the surf shops those charts which sort of say that a spill in the golf would end up going, and the bite would end up going all the way through to Marimbula, up the um, <laughs> coast of New South Wales. Fred Paul from Menzies has a good surfer himself. Menzies Research Centre. Has done some wonderful work on just why that isn't true. But why are we prepared to accept economic loss because of environmental pseudoscientific 
catastrophism. And this is, I think, a real worry, particularly for places like South Australia, where I think the largest private sector employer in the state now is, and I might be wrong here, I actually think it's a convenience chain (laughs) on the run. Seriously, petrol stations and convenience stores. So, I mean, if that's what your economy is based on, and you're saying, oh, no, we mustn't drill... I mean, this isn't even shabby genteel. It's just shabby. Yeah, in that, in that in that context, it's not about whether the science has been endorsed by a separate scientific authority or whether the science is good or bad. It's the fact that there are trade-offs. So it may well be that um, it would be bad to have a golf spill in the bite, but it is also really important that people who live in that state have jobs. But if you had a, and it's up a, to poli- policymakers to make those trade-offs. But if you had a body that said that, that would be powerful. So they're setting up a productivity commission there as an example. Now, if that productivity commission had good people in it uh, and it said, you know, it outlined the economic environmental case for drilling in the Gulf, that would help push this along. I feel like that's the job of the politicians. Yeah, but they're not... They're, they, they need No, they need to point to something. They need to be able to point to a report. They need to be able to point to someone who looks like they're above... Um, above the political fray to say, look, this guy, this body that we've set up, which is independent, has had a look at the case for this, and they've come out and said X, Y, and Z. So if you're able to set up a body that has good people in it, that can help push reform. I, I think I, I, there is a hypothetical world in which that would work. Like I can imagine, if you can imagine a perfect authority it, uh, then, then, yeah, okay. Let's set up the perfect authority, even if it's temporary. Even yeah, if temporary, I take your point, if, if I take your one point that term, it works for a few years, three okay? years, great. And then we, and then that's full of lefties, and then we create a new one. And no but there's a real world but, where it didn't work. Um, on the um, again, going back to South Australia, the consultation process they had over a nuclear waste depository. It was literally one parliamentarian. He did virtually all the background research got his department when he became a minister, started doing his backbencher, got a minister as a minister, got his department to crunch the numbers, and then it got put on the table, and then, of course, the process just collapsed. But <laughs> but, we, but we have to accept... Uh, my argument is, anyway, my argument is that I think rather than looking to these authoritative bodies, we have to accept that this stuff is contested, we have to accept that it's always going to be contested and that political choices have to be made in the absence of ultimate claims about the truth of the matter. And we should give medals to those politicians who are actually prepared to take accountable take accountability for a decision. Yeah, we should just pay yes. the salary, but yeah. Yeah, mm. no, no, credit where credit's due, not enough of it. Meanwhile, in the US, there's been a big push around conservatism at the first annual National Conservatism Conference. That's right. So this is a very interesting um, uh, thing to be occurring right now. There's a National Conservatism Conference in, held in Washington, D.C. with um, speakers like Tucker Carlson, the TV host Tucker Carlson, um, uh, Peter Thiel, the um, uh, tech investor, and John Bolton, who's the national security advisor at the moment. This is a um, – look, rather than try to explain it to me, I'll, I'll just quickly quote from their About section. They argue that the past and future of conservatism is inextricably linked to the idea of the nation – to the principle of national independence and to the revival of unique national identities. They see this in stark opposition to the excesses of puritist libertarianism and also in stark opposition to political theories grounded in race. There's a lot going on here, but this is obviously a um, building a post-Trump idea of what the conservative movement 
looks like, um, a return or a, um, a basing it, basing mainstream conservatism in a very nationalist framework. Trump, of course, has described himself as a nationalist. Dan, I know you've been following this very closely and I'd be interested in your views. Obviously, we're just watching from the other side of the planet, but uh, how, how, what, have, what have we learned? Well, this is a part of something much broader that's been happening around the Western world for some time. You mentioned Trump. There's also Brexit. There's what's been happening in Eastern Europe with Poland and Hungary. So there's been, um, I would argue, a general reputation um, of sort of abstraction of liberal internationalism and a turn towards um, a, a conservatism. It's not even really a conservatism. It's more of a governing philosophy uh, that's more rooted in um, in place, in time, in culture and in tradition and with the concept of the nation as the centre of that. Um, and so some of the topics, it's worth actually mentioning a couple of the other speakers. So there's also Patrick Deneen, who was author of Why Liberalism Failed, J.D. Vance, who's the author of Hillbilly Elegy, um, Charles Cresser, who's um, editor at uh, Claremont Review of Books. So there's a, a lot of the who's who of, of the conservative circles from the United States. Um, and it's, uh, as I say, I think it's a pushback a little bit against the, domin the dominating ideas, firstly, of, um, of liberal internationalism, so the, the belief in unfettered um, immigration and, and trade and looking at things more through a national interest perspective. Um, there's also a pushback against what um, some authors and some of the speakers uh, interpret as a, a theology of liberation. So they distinguish typically between freedom in a negative freedom sense and liberation as the idea that people should be extricated from all of their, their social and cultural obligations sometimes through the power of the state. And so one of the main themes you'll see with a lot of these writers and speakers is the collapse of civil society as being one of the main problems and that's in part been uh, a function of their interpretation of liberalism which is the, the autonomy of the individual at no um, at, at any cost and to facilitate that autonomy sometimes through the use of state power. So if you don't want to take care of your parents, that's okay, we have a welfare state. If you don't want to take care of your children, that's okay, we have child services and so on and so forth. So they're very much of the view that um, people's uh, social and moral obligations uh, mean something and that if you want to have a society of limited government, you will need to have a very strong and robust civil society which is underpinned by a sense of obligation. So this is... Um, yeah, there's lots of differences within, I don't want to say all of these speakers are the same. It's a big variety. You mentioned John Bolton, who's quite different to Tucker Carlson as an example. So On foreign policy. On foreign yeah. policy. Yeah. So, I mean, yes. Even Trump said John, John Bolton's never never seen a country that he didn't want to invade. You exactly, know, exactly. So, but it's that's a, it's a long way from Pat Buchanan and America first, isn't it? I mean, that, that's really papering over the cracks in conservatism to say that, to have, you know... Um, uh, Bolton and uh, you know the other the other paleo conservatives on the same platform. Exactly, but it is it is dominated by those paleo conservatives, if you if uh, to use a term. So, but that's the general. I think that's the general ideological or phil philosophical pushback that's going on. Christian, how do you, how do you see this? I mean, this this is. I mean, I, I I sort of think this is the intellectual attempt to rationalise the last couple of years of political history. Well, it's just really interesting that you know the name Pat Buchanan just suddenly got thrown up, and it's it's a long way from Pat Buchanan, because I think over the last couple of weeks after the death of Ross Perot, there's been a really interesting analysis of um, populism in the United States going on in a way that hasn't happened for many years, and I think even in just general media, there's been a lot of 
well, look at what Ross Perot said back then, look at his dogmatism, how that actually potentially scuttled a um, populist movement back at the start of the 90s, particularly a populist movement challenging the Republican Party, and comparing that to the outside um, challenge of Trump. I think that this is a constantly recurring theme in American politics. I think it's just being dressed up in a world where really post the global financial crisis, those divisions have become almost impossible to bear. And I think nowhere in the Western world have they become more impossible to bear than in the United States, where the idea of the white United States, as it has been known, has just absolutely collapsed and caused such a level of... um, national demoralisation. So I think that's where the interesting Trumpism part comes on um, in um, Hillbilly Elegy, those sorts of concepts, those sorts of books. I think that they're the real updates of it. There's almost the sort of monocle magazine style of just complete glossy internationalism. (laughs) It's always been there. It's probably been there in modernism as a concept, as an architectural concept, and everything like that um, from um, the end of the Second World War. Um, Probably fascinating, the two places that have fought back against it the most have been, say, the United States and... um, France. Yeah, I mean, um, historically, you, the US has been very opposed to, to many of these internationalist constraints, if you will. Yes. Uh, and I think France has been another interesting one, sort of culturally. But um, we are in a process, I think, of really radically rethinking um, both capitalism and conservatism and liberalism. It is, again, the post GFC world. We know that we are living in this bizarre bubble. We look at Japan. We look at some of these moral challenges out there, and I think you've got to call them moral challenges of artificial intelligence, of 3D printing, of just what they mean and how we as a society have the strength and the coherence to deal with them, and particularly the challenges to conservatism because these are such whiggish ideas of things are always going to get better and suddenly you know the self-replicating machine nanotechnology things like that they are so against the natural order and yet they represent the sort of um, progression of humankind that both liberals and many conservatives have actually welcomed, but that's not that's not really what they. I mean, they may be thinking about AI, and no doubt that Peter Thiel is, and we might talk about his comments in a moment. Um, uh, but for the most part, they seem much more worried about just capitalist power rather than anything else. So, for instance, these are expressions of it. Yeah. Okay. So, for instance, Tucker Carlson's speech was called Big Business Hates Your Family. And the quote that I've seen, um, the most compelling quote was, the biggest threat to liberty is no longer the federal government, it's big companies. Now, you could say that's because Google and Facebook and or Amazon are, are really big companies. But then on the other hand, they also, um, the conference apparently voted to adopt, adopt what they call a, quote, industrial policy. Um, uh, to which Patrick Deneen, of the the author of Why Liberalism Failed, responded, this is not your father's but your grandfather's 
conservatism, it sort of strikes me that not only are, are we facing these ideological ructions because the challenges are just so significant that um, people have a variety of views about how to deal with them, but they're trying to roll it back into a much more interventionist and I would argue anti-liberty world that has been proven to fail. It's not like industrial policy we decided that oh it worked but it was bad on liberty or it was it wasn't libertarian enough no it failed it was a disaster um but you know are, are we entering a world um dan of of sort of maga make america great again socialism is that is that uh, we got democratic socialists on the one side and maga socialists on the other possibly so there is a penchant to move away from an ideological commitment to free markets or limited government so they're, a lot of the authors and speakers aren't necessarily afraid to say, we think X is good, so if we don't get X from the private sector, we'll get X from government. So it's just a right-wing version of left-wing interventionism. So that, I think that's partly true. The point I'm really interested in, and I'd love to get other people's views on this, because I think this is the preeminent issue um, on, in terms of freedom, which is, so Tucker Carlson's a talk show host, so he exaggerates things. <laughs> so I don't agree with his outlandish statement How dare um, you? <laughs> that you know the biggest threat is the private sector. But... I would argue it's a bigger threat than it has been in the past. And I'm not sure we're very well equipped with the ideas to manage this. And I don't want to bring up Israel Folau all the time, but <laughs> it is a current example that illustrates the point that um, you know we have employment contracts, okay, that's fine. But at the end of the day, Israel Folau hasn't been silenced by the government. He's been silenced by a big corporate backed up by another big corporate. Now, this is a, I think this is a real challenge because you can have, you can have all the First Amendments in the world. You can have the most rigorous, government, um, pro, uh, the most rigorous protection against government um, with regards to your speech or your beliefs or your actions. But if other people in society do not share that view, if they don't fundamentally believe in live and let live, if they don't fundamentally believe that freedom is a good thing, then the law will not do anything to stop that. And that's exactly what Scott Morrison said. And I think it was a great quote that Janet Albrookson picked up in her, in her article today. Um, Scott Morrison was talking about religious freedom, and I'm paraphrasing, but he said something to the effect of, um, it's not going to be the government that protects your freedom, it's going to be uh, when it's accepted culturally. And I think that's basically right. We're facing a very, um, a, a very oppressive, uh, intimidating culture of certain people, but also of the idea of freedom of religion and speech in general. But I think that's empirically wrong. So I, I, I see the argument that the that nowadays corporations are imposing a particular morality on some of their um, staff, and, um, and I'm really opposed to that. But historically, we've also seen that just from the other direction. So, um, if you were, were, if you're a woman, once you got married, you might lose your job. If you were outwardly gay, you might lose your job. You might get disciplined or, or something along those lines. So we have seen, in the history of corporate capitalism, to its discredit, a great deal of that sort of um, uh, moral manipulation. Um, and we're seeing but that's a ref that was a reflection of the views of the time. And this is my point. Mm. What happens when people have very bad views? But what, happen what happens when people have fundamentally illiberal views? What corporations are doing, they're not leading this. The, the, the fact that if you want to make partner at a big four firm, uh, consulting a law firm or, or whatever else, uh, you, you're going to have to be a minority. Um, it's not going to be based on merit. They haven't driven this. This is a reflection of what their clients want, which is a reflection of what many in society want. Um, how do we push back against no, that? No, but this, 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 where this conference, or the thrust of this conference is getting it wrong, is the fundamental question in society is still how shall we all live together? 
And uh, where, but, but that's what they're talking about. No, no, well, no, no. What they what they want is rather than a society with limited government where we accommodate people's desires to live in different ways, and, and which is the best solution um, to uh, people who want to live differently, which is tolerance and legal protection of their rights. What I detect uh, reading through the speeches from the National Conservatism Conference is they leap from saying uh, we want to reaffirm the nation state and I'm all for the nation state too, to a particular idea of the nation. They're they're saying everyone should reunite around our particular vision of the nation and I I think America of all places, its constitution, to go right back to where Christians started, you know, it does commit to life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. You know, live in your own way and, and a society as diverse as America's um, and indeed a society as diverse as Australia's can only survive when, when there is that room for people to live different ways. And Israel Folau should be allowed to without being persecuted by corporations. I absolutely agree with that. Um, but the solution is not a, um, a national conservative or uh, an, uh, they're calling it national conservatism. That's their, their tag for themselves, this idea that uh, society to be a nation, it has to be a conservative nation. I, I just think that's a dead end. But what, but what is the solution? I mean, what we have now is failing and it's getting worse. It's a limited government. It, but we, it's, it's, it's limited but government. It's limited it's intervention. Not, it's, it's limited telling yeah, people the way to live. Yeah, we all love limited government. But, no, how but do it's you get telling it? people the way to live. Because corporations, I think in particular, are really guilty of this at the moment. And I mean, you actually mentioned, Daniel, with a really interesting point of not just corporations, but big sport. I mean, what the hell is rugby doing telling us about morality and things like that? You know, we could go into all these arguments about what's the AFL doing, cooking up a history of football, for example, mm. that the football historians yeah. will say is dubious in the best. Corporate social responsibility is effectively, you know, like the... Um, flash frozen meal that you're supposed to bung in your microwave and it's going to look like a five-star creation. And then there's the little fine print on the bottom of the packet, serving suggestion only. I mean, it is literally like that. It (laughs) is serving suggestion only. It is an ideal world designed to make these corporates look good in the way they think they should look good. (laughs) But the the point here is that it's all about culture, that, um, again... We can't rely on the government to protect our freedoms when other people do not respect that idea. And so, yes, we need to have a positive view of what people should think. We should inculcate people with a sense. I'd rather I'd rather we, choose my own beliefs. What What's the guarantee that? But you cannot you, you cannot expect to have a a system of limited government and protection of freedom when no one believes that and no one agrees with you. you this idea of complete they and utter. Own, they only have to believe this idea that we should all complete, enter into a social contract so for do, limited government, and that itself is a moral stipulation. So you have no, a no, positive no, view. No, that, that, everybody has to believe in that's some a con- fundamental. It's a constitutional stipulation. It's not but, about the specifics why, of what. So I, I might respond to that in saying, why do I have to agree with your view about the good? Why do I have to accept your freedoms? Why do I have to accept? Why do I have to accept that? Well, this where is it, where's it well, written down is, that I have to accept that? This is where um, Scruton is right. Um, that we Roger Scruton. We yes, Roger Scruton, the British philosopher. We do we do start from the proposition that we're only having this discussion because we are part of the same nation, but we can actually agree on some rules of the game. But the rules of the any rules of the game that say that um, we must believe a particular thing and, and live a particular way um, don't work. But you, you did use the word culture there. I'm very sorry. 
Dan. <laughs> that is going to be my segue. I am going to seize... Your guillotining debate. This let's, is my point. Let's, let, let, let's move on to the culture that we want to defend that's so right. strongly. Or, or you can talk for the next 10 minutes and I'll just cut it out in the post-edit. <laughs> Thank you, Pete. <laughs> <laughs> this is the untrammeled abuse of power. That's, that's how the state works. <laughs> or in this case, a podcast. No. We, I'm, then the other reason why I'm happy to um, leave it there is I'm sure this won't be the last time we have this discussion. Absolutely not. Famous last words. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Um, in our box, Books and Culture segment, we talk about what our panellists have been reading, watching and listening to. Chris Berg. So I have been um, uh, reading a fascinating uh, book of short stories by a um, writer called Bandy. The book's called The Accusation. It is seven stories smuggled out of North Korea um, by a writer that there, obviously there are a lot of North Korean refugees in South Korea and around the world who write novels. This is one, these are novels or stories that were um, produced in North Korea between 1989 and 1995. Um, the stories were smuggled out in 2013. They cover the sort of paradoxes and paranoias of life in this incredibly regimented society, particularly in the early 1990s. Um, Bandy himself, I think it's himself, is a North Korean writer and a member of the Korean Writers Alliance. So as I understand, Bandy is actually a writer under the state system and writes propaganda novels and all that sort of thing, but very quietly on the side wrote um, uh, wrote these really fascinating and engaging short stories that I commend to the readers. Bandy apparently knows that they've been published. Um, uh, Bandy has seen images of the cover of the book on a phone, but it's a fascinating way to um, get a picture into a society that we still have very little deep understanding of. Um, every one of us knows, you know, people who have visited North Korea on tourism and um and there was that australian um boy who was who, who who was running those tour groups and was arrested and sent home um a couple of weeks ago but actually hearing voices outside the propaganda bubble outside the official tourism structure is really fascinating very horrifying um uh, and and really 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 worth reading is it uh, fair to draw a parallel to say solzhenitsyn and his fictionalization of life under the Soviet Union. Yeah, absolutely. Though, of course, I mean, we we knew who Solzhenitsyn was, um, uh, and the the Solzhenitsyn's experience is not as bad as Bandy's um, uh, Bandy's has been, or could be, I should say, if he was caught or if they were caught um, having published this. So it's it it's a very um, very powerful book, and and it, it, that's right. I mean, so if you're interested in life behind the curtain as you might be with um, Solzhenitsyn, then Bandy's worth reading. Yep, real existing socialism. Christian, <laughs> how about you? I have been drawing back on reading for the past few years on just Australian history and the very earliest days of white settlement. I was fascinated by um, Bill Gamage's book, The Largest Estate on Earth, when it first came out. Then when um, Bruce Pascoe... And, and, and Bill Gamage's book is essentially about uh, the Aboriginal management of the uh, land. Aboriginal land management. European settlement. And that Aboriginals really controlled the land and... Uh, through fire. Through fire to um, make it more, um, more fertile and just easier for hunting. And then Bruce Pascoe's book, Dark Emu, 
which was covered in some length in the Weekend Australian magazine not that long ago, where um, Bruce Pascoe talks about evidence that he claims exists of further to what Gamage says of actual permanent Aboriginal structures, settlements, and what we really could say was Aboriginal um, Aboriginal agriculture. One of the reasons why Pascoe particularly fascinated me is a few pages in, he actually quotes my great-great-grandfather, <laughs> um, George Goider, the um, Surveyor General of South Australia who's responsible for Goider's line of rainfall. I found that an incredible personal challenge that, um, well, my grandmother wrote a lot of um, history books. I think she wrote more than a dozen history books. So if I'm to believe my grandmother... I've got to believe, I've got to believe her grandfather. Mm. Um, so what I've been doing from that is just going back through so many of those sort of accounts of um, journals or the first sort of compilations of journals that were printed largely as reproductions in the 1970s, just trying to draw on some of these ideas of what was there and I suppose one of the things that really is coming out is just the variability of our nation. Those days of exploration into the centre of Australia, the I found a lake, you come back a few years later. There is no lake. There is no <laughs> lake. Mm. The Channel Country. We live in an utterly extraordinary country from that point of view. And I just think that if we've got such challenging, a challenging environment, if we've got these rivers that begin like a thinky, they begin in the desert, they peter out in the desert, they go nowhere. When you are left with that sort of physical challenge, what are going to be the anthropological challenges on top of that? And I think we might be on the verge of a really interesting debate with really massive implications for how we think about ourselves and how we think about white settlement. And I think it's something that we really need to come to terms with for those of us who are on the more conservative side of politics. I, I read uh, Bruce Pascoe's book, Dark Emu, um, a few years ago, and it is an incredibly provocative book, um, just rejecting almost everything that we understand about um, uh, Indigenous settlement in Australia, including like some really significant claims that seem to be backed up by um, contemporary testimony. There were um, physical permanent settlements. There was actual agriculture infrastructure. Um, uh, there, there was really, really significant land management, not just in that fire sense, but in the they, mm. you know, building significant traps and farms and all that sort of stuff. And that just completely restructures the way you th we should think about what came before white settlement. Um, drawing whatever policy conclusions you might have after the fact, but it is amazing. Well, as I said, I just think it is so utterly challenging. I think we need to come to terms with this. Um, I think we also need to be careful, of course, of... Um, well, I don't want to place in the category of pseudoscience. I just like having to put the, use that word. 
but you know is it all red herrings this is why i think it is actually hugely significant i think it's why we've got to go back to the original sources yes and as i said we learn from those original sources just how this country can change yes is it? and so rapidly uh, we'll, we'll put links uh, to both of those books uh, uh, and uh, we'll find any, and to Richard Gorder uh, on, in the show notes. But uh, as you say, Christian, uh, there's uh, fer- fertile ground uh, to really build on there. Daniel. Thanks, Scott. I've been reading a book by David uh, Epstein called uh, Range and it looks at um, the d- issues pertaining to uh, generalism versus specialisation. I think it's a really interesting book um, because as economists or as an economist, uh, you think of specialisation as mostly an unalloyed good, that you know, specialisation in trade is what generates wealth and prosperity uh, and opportunity that comes with that. You can get really good at something if you just focus on it. Um, this has a good um, argument from a couple of perspectives. If you're, uh, you know, the most obvious one is if you're just focusing on one particular thing, then you're, you're missing out on a lot of other potential things. A lot of the great people of history, I'm also reading a biography of Winston Churchill and it occurs to me how the range of things he did he, he painted he loved reading he loved doing a range of things and so uh, this idea that um, you can't really uh, fully appreciate just how different kind doing different types of things can actually help you uh, get better at that specific thing you're trying to get at you might say oh, to get better at golf or to get better at reading or to get better at writing or whatever I just do more of that but the argument here is you you do other things that sort of expands your capabilities, expand your uh, capacity, um, uh, your general skill set, and that actually allows you to get better at specialisation itself. Um, he has a very interesting. So, so this is really a rejoinder to like Malcolm Gladwell, the journalist who, who yeah. read that book. He said ten thousand hours. Yeah, yeah. You yeah. spend five thousand hours on two things. Is his that, <laughs> which well, depressed the hell out of you, like you know. Yeah. Like five hundred. And spend ten thousand hours. And I, I could have really spent ten thousand hours learning the violin, and I'd still be a rubbish violin player. So yeah, exactly. So <laughs> the idea, I think, the actual number of ten thousand has been thoroughly refuted. Um, it's just so. But he uses the uh, example of Tiger Woods versus what Roger Federer. So Tiger Woods um, uh, famously uh, was uh, got into golf and followed golf at a very young age and was completely obsessed about it. The author actually says, contrary to the popular opinion, it wasn't his father that drove him into it. He actually was really interested in golf and his parents encouraged him to do it. Now, I don't know what the truth of that is, but that's his argument. But nonetheless, it's the hyper-specialization of Tiger Woods compared to Roger Federer, the famous tennis player who he argues was very late to tennis. Um, he was encouraged by his parents to do a broad range of sports and a broad range of activities. Um, so he says there's you know, basically two paths um, uh, to that. So interesting book from that perspective. And Roger Federer is still playing at the age of 37, whereas uh, uh, Tiger Woods completely stuffed his back. And was out it, for about and, and reputation while you're at it. Oh, well, yeah, but that's... that's very interesting from the Ash Barty point of view. Yes. Indeed, it is. Uh, took took a year off to play yeah, take cricket. Off, play cricket. Yeah. <laughs> Came back, won a, won a grand slam. So um, there's that's a great recommendation, Dan, for all those... All those listeners who've never quite decided what they wanted to do with their life and are still don't <laughs> don't bother deciding. <laughs> yeah, 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 it's okay. Yeah, yeah, just just keep it up. Generalist win. Uh, uh, that's that's. Uh, I'm quite happy to take away that that lesson. Um, I've been watching Netflix, of course, as we do, uh, and uh, I watch Stranger Things, which is um, for those who love that uh, love the first two seasons. It doesn't need any further plug. Just the only re- reflection I have on it is just how clever the makers of it are in creating a show which evokes the 1980s. And uh, the the references within it, 
uh, to things like uh, Terminator or Fast Times at Ridgemont High or all sorts of 80s cultural markers. And so what it does is for the, it's about the only show I can remember in the last five years which you can actually watch as a family, like it's been said before, but uh, watching television is not a communal experience. It's not a family experience anymore. But when you've got teenage kids, and there's actually something where they're enjoying it because it's well done, but you're also watching it and getting to explain what the cultural references are. It's actually a family pastime. And uh, does your family enjoy that part of it as much? As I, you I do, actually, having to no, no, the kids like uh, it's the only conversation I've had with my sixteen-year-old uh, in the past four years. Um, <laughs> no, no, it's <laughs> but it's uh, that that was one of the traditional features of entertainment, which has sort of been lost in an age where everything's seen on screens and phones, and uh, there's no more fights over the television because there's so many different ways of consuming. So. I do commend uh, Stranger Things both as an entertainment experience but also a family experience. A way to finally talk to your children. Well, yes. I think it's, uh, it's opened a whole new way of communication with my tween. And um, <laughs> yeah. even better than that, given that it's um, now being streamed on SBS On Demand, I'm using Stranger Things as a gateway of getting them into the X-Files. Oh, very so. good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 X-Files, yeah, which has been remastered. Yes. Oh, well, there's a future culture pick. So, um, future and past culture pick. This has been uh, Looking Forward. Uh, thank you for listening. If you're not already a member or supporter of the IPA, please do go to ipa.org.au where you can join or donate. I would like to thank very much our guests for today, um, uh, Christian Kerr, Daniel Wilde, and, of course, my co-host, uh, Chris Berg. Thank you, Scott. And uh, big thanks, too, to our production team, Josh Stranger and Saul Muscatel for getting us going today. We'll be back with more Looking Forward next week.